We are in the last chapter of 2 Samuel. Yay! So we made it all the way through. Ooh. Okay. I'm excited. We're, we're at the end. Uh, so we're last chapter of 2 Samuel. Uh, and we come up to this, this last chapter and we find that David's going to have to deal with some of his sin again in the last chapter. This is how 2 Samuel ends. Uh, I titled this lesson, David Sins by Numbering the People. So we're going to look at that, uh, what happens, the consequences of what happens, and how God deals with David's sin here. So that's where we're at today. Let's go ahead and get started. We'll start by opening in prayer. I'm going to pick on Lemuel because he's drinking out of his cup, so I figure I'll pick on him while his mouth is uh, full. Lemuel, will you open us up in prayer? Amen. So 2 Samuel 24, let's start in verses 1 and 2. Miriam. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against him to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. So David plans to number the people. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against who? Israel. Israel. Israel sins against God somehow. The passage doesn't give us specifics as to why, but given Israel, it could be idolatry, it could be some other way. And God's anger is aroused against them. So it says in the passage here that he, God, moved David against them to go and number Israel and Judah. Now, we're going to find out later that God considers what David's going to do a sin here. So the question comes up is that, did God make David sin? And what would be the answer? No. Who made David sin? David. We're all responsible for our own actions, right? We're all responsible for our own sins before God. David is put in the situation where he does sin for whatever reason. Now, the question, another question we have here is, God moved David to sin to number Judah and Israel. So, why is this a problem that David is numbering Israel? We have a whole book in the Old Testament where God commanded Israel to, or commanded Moses to go number Israel. And we actually have commands where God tells how the king should number Israel. So why is this a problem that David is numbering Israel? Well, there's a couple of thoughts on this. Um, number one is the idea, letter A there, that perhaps David was not trusting God and instead trusting in numbers. Now, this could be a number of ways here. Maybe David was being prideful and saying, I'm going to number Israel to kind of show how great my army is, and I'm going to take pride in that. And he's kind of turning his trust away from God and saying, Look at how great my army is. Look at how great I've become as a king. 
and I'm going to number Israel to prove my greatness or maybe to brag to other kings, look at how mighty my army is. And so maybe it's a pride thing with him. Or maybe even uh, some commentators suggested that maybe David is looking to expand Israel's territory beyond what God had given him. And so he's numbering his armies to see if he's able to do that and say, okay, let's, let's think about a conquest now that everything's secure and everything's stable in Israel. I'm going to go take over some more nations and build my empire a little bit larger than what God has given me. And maybe that was something God didn't want David to do. Um, the second thought is that maybe David is incorrectly taking the census. And to look at that, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 30, verses 12 and 16. Nathan, go ahead and read that. So another thought that was given by some of the commentators is that maybe David went ahead and is doing the census without taking this half a shekel tax on the census, and therefore he's incorrectly taking the census. And you can see in here um, from the verse that you're supposed to take this shekel so that there would not be a plague among the people of Israel. One of the options that God gives as David for his judgment is that there would be a three-day plague and so that maybe lines up a little bit with this. So those, those are some thoughts on why this is a problem, because it doesn't seem like necessarily taking this census, counting these numbers, is in and of itself wrong, but there, there's some reason why um, God is offended by David's actions here, why, David, why this is a sin for David. And later on we'll see that David agrees that what he has done was wrong and sinful. So we know that whatever the reason why here, that David agrees with God on this, that he had sinned before the Lord. Um, so David makes this plan, and David commands Joab and um, the commander of the army to go and number the people. And so he comes up with this big plan. We're going to number our people, and Joab, you go out and do this. You're the commander of my army. Go take care of this. Well, that gives Joab a chance, and, and Joab's kind of this guy. Sometimes he's doing really evil things. Sometimes he's uh, murdering bloodthirsty man, and sometimes Joab comes out and does some really good things, and this gives Joab a chance to do something really good for once, so let's see Joab do good. Josiah, go ahead. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captain of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captain of the army went out to the presence of the king to count the so I have here, David is not persuaded by Joab. Oh. 
So Joab argues against David's plan. And Joab kind of gives us, uh, may, may the Lord add to the people a hundred times more than there are. It's kind, of, it's kind of a blessing. It's kind of like, don't worry about it. May God give you even more than whatever you count. It, leave it out of your hands. Don't worry about taking this count. Um, which makes me think that it, it maybe wasn't the idea of that he's not taking the tax right, but maybe that he's just being prideful and arrogant or for whatever reason. Joab says, don't, don't do this, David. This is wrong. You know you're not supposed to do this. And then Joab questions David's motives on this. Why does the Lord the king desire this thing? Now, Second, or First Chronicles 21 gives us a little bit uh, larger speech from Joab. Here Joab answers, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. We got that. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Here it seems like there's something of David questioning maybe the loyalty of his people. Um, why then does the Lord require this? That was something that was um, in the passage we have. Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? And so he, he's really, Second Chronicles gives a little bit larger speech from Joab and, and shows a little bit more that Joab understands what's going on here and is trying to talk David out of doing this thing. And Joab's trying to do the right thing here and say, David, don't do this thing. You're going to be a cause of guilt in Israel. You're going to, this is going to cause a problem. You're the king. You need to be accountable to God for this. Don't do this thing. But David doesn't change his mind on this. And so he sends Joab out, and he sends Joab and the commanders, the captains of the army, out to go and number the people of Israel. And Joab, of course, obeys because he's under the king's authority, and he needs to obey. Even though he disagrees with this command, and even though he doesn't want to do it, he still goes out and obeys David and does what David tells him to do. So Joab follows David's orders despite the fact that he disagrees with them, and despite the fact that he knows that bad's going to come of it, he still obeys his king. So the second Samuel three twenty four, three and four. Uh, verses five through nine. Lemuel, go ahead. So David numbers the people. And specifically the fighting men here. They traveled the land. And if you look at this and you study it out carefully, you'll see that um, it looks like that 
they came down from the north of the land, came down through the south, and they came up through Benjamin. It doesn't look like they actually covered all of Benjamin. It looks like David actually cut this a little bit short. If you go to the First Chronicles, I didn't put the passage in here. Uh, First Chronicles gives a little bit different number for the census. It looks like that uh, maybe there's some reason why that, but that David may have stopped the census short of counting all of Benjamin. And um, it may be that, as we'll see in the next verse, that David's convicted of his sin, and maybe he told Job, okay, we need to stop this because I'm doing what's wrong. And Job, having the opinion that David was wrong, said, good, let's stop. (laughs) Let's not finish the census. But um, for nine months and 12 days, this went on. And the final count they came up was that there were 800,000 fighting men in Israel and 500,000 fighting men in Judah. That's 1,300,000 fighting men. That's a very large number of men, and that's like from the age of 20 on up through as old as they could fight. So you're looking at a very large population of the nation of Israel at this time in the land. This is a pretty strong nation that David's ruling over. Uh, and so, so this is the count they come up with. Again, I, it, it seems like a lot of commentators have looked at this in the land they said, and they, they may have stopped this short of finishing up counting in Benjamin. So there may have been a few more than that even that were counted in the numbers. So verse 10, we see... Jonathan, go ahead. And we see that... No, I stopped using Roman numerals already. Okay. Go back to Roman numerals. David is convicted. This little story starts to get a little interesting. David... On his own, remember with Bathsheba, he had to have Nathan the prophet come and tell him the story about the lamb, the guy with the one lamb, and uh, the rich guy who stole the lamb and killed the lamb to feed his buddies. And David had to get mad about that, and Nathan had to go, you are the man. And it wasn't until that point that David felt convicted about his sin. Here, David, on his own, comes to the conclusion, I've done wrong. His heart's convicted, so um, his heart condemned himself. David was already tender to these things. Okay, so nine, nine months and 12 days it took him. But he didn't have the prophet come to him and have to tell him that, at least. And so David immediately goes to God at, after nine months and 12 days. Not immediately, but, you know, when, when his heart convicts him. And he confesses his sin to the Lord. He confesses he sinned greatly. So he acknowledges his sin before God. He acknowledges that he sinned before God, that it was against God. His sin was great before God. He asked for his iniquity to be taken away. So he goes to God and says, please take away my iniquity in this. And he confesses that what he did was a foolish thing to do. All things that are very true, and he's being very open and honest before God. Now at this point, do you think that God's forgiven him? Let me ask this question. What do you think? Nobody wants to answer this morning. Raise your hand if you think God's forgiven him when he comes before him and confesses this. 
See, a lot of hands going up. Anybody think that he's not forgiven? Anybody thinks he's not forgiven? I'm going to go with the forgiven people. I think God forgives him at this point. Because I think God's the same here as he is in the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So David coming and confessing his sin before God, I think that's the same kind of God that's ready to forgive David his sin. Now as we go on and read the chapter, you're going to say, well, but David was, had to face this judgment from God. Yes, he did. Well, you say he was forgiven. Yes, I did. Well, why do you have to face the judgment? Because, well, sin still has consequences. Just because you're forgiven your sin doesn't mean that there's results of what you did. If I go and rob a bank, and afterwards I say, God, that was foolish of me. I've sinned greatly against you. I ask that you take away my iniquity. I think God's still going to forgive me of that sin, but when the police show up at my door and say, you robbed the bank, we're going to have to take you off to jail. I'm not going to say to them, hey, look, God forgave me. You can't arrest me now. I'm still going to have to go to jail to, to pay for that sin, right? There's still consequences of what I've done. And so in David's case, there's still going to be consequences. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. I'm giving away all my takeaways, apparently. So anyway, so David's convicted of his sin. I think he does the right thing. He goes to God. He confesses it. I think he receives God's forgiveness, but it still needs to be dealt with. So let's look at verses 11 through 13. Who would like to read? Not with Dr. Andy Stearns. Sorry. Abigail appreciates that. I earned points with my daughter, so that's more important than anything else, I think. Now, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the top of David's cedar, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. So David is confronted. So God sends Gad to David. Now Gad is constantly called um, David's seer, David's prophet. I always thought when I was younger, Nathan was, because I just remember the story of Bathsheba. I thought, oh, Nathan is David's prophet. But Gad was there before David was even king. Remember when he was in the caves and stuff, it was Gad who was the prophet that was with him. Gad's been there all along, and I, I tend to forget about this guy, Gad. So it's a good reminder that Gad kind of hangs out with David and, and serves as his kind of personal prophet, it seems like. Um, so God sends Gad to David, and Gad says, here's what the Lord says to you. You get three choices. Here's the fun choices you get. Seven years of famine. That sounds fun. Or you can flee for three months before your enemies. David has experience with that. So, you know, that's kind of knows what that's like. Or three days of plague in your land. So those are your three choices. And David, you consider what you want, and I'll take the answer back to God and let him know what you've chosen. So there you go. There's your three choices. You know, it's kind of it's kind of nice. How often do you get to choose what God's going to do to you when you sin? You know, God doesn't come down and say, oh, you, you really blew that one, Sean. 
But here, I'm going to give you three choices of how we're going to deal with this. Oh, okay, well, that's interesting. What would you choose in that situation, I wonder? Um, you know, to me, I, I, I'm not a very patient guy. I, I'm, I'm looking at the three days and going, okay, that's three days I have to deal with this and it's done. Okay, that's, <laughs> that seems pretty good to me. I don't think I can handle seven years of dealing with this and being reminded. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that that would be my thought. David David has another reason why he chooses what he chooses, and so let's look at verses fourteen through sixteen. Joanna, go ahead. So David here is judged. And so David gives his answer on this. He's in distress. Well, no kidding. He's, he has three really awful choices to choose from. You know, probably weighing it out thinking, well, which, which one's going to be worse for me? Which one's going to be worse for the people? What, what am I supposed to do here? Um, and his conclusion says, he comes to the conclusion, let him fall into the hands of God. Why? Because God's mercies are great. He goes back to the character of God. I don't know what men are going to do to me. Men are evil. Men are awful. Men are, men can be really mean. Men can hurt me pretty badly. But God, his mercies are great. I know that Whatever God's going to do, it's, it's going to be merciful. It's, he's not going to do beyond what's, what's needed for me. He's not going to punish me beyond what's necessary. I'm, God's mercies are great. I'm going to trust in God. And he goes back to the character of God. That's how he makes his decision. So, so he chooses the one thing that, okay, I'm going to choose the thing that God's in control of. To me, there's actually two, the seven years of famine, I think God would be in control. But the three days of plague in the land, he says, God's, God's hand is all over that one. Let me fall into God's hands. That's how I'm going to choose that. Don't let me fall into the hands of men. I don't trust men. They've been awful with me. And I trust God. His mercies are great. So David falls back to the character of God. He, he knows God. He trusts God. He trusts in God's faithfulness. That's how he makes his decision. Um, so that, I think that's a pretty good way to make that decision. Look at who God is and, and what you know about God and say, I'm, I'm trusting in God. So God sends the plague, and it starts from probably the next morning, it sounds like, um, until the appointed time, I'm assuming the three days there. And I, somehow I hit a two instead of a seven. That should be 70,000 there. So you can change that in your notes to 70,000. So in three days, 70,000 people died. Um, even in our time, that would be a lot of people to die in three days. So I don't know if David felt like a plague that can't be that bad. Um, remember, he, he numbered 1.3 million fighting men and it took him nine months and, and three days, 70,000 people died. That's a lot of people. Um, and then uh, we get this little story here. Um, when an angel stretched his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, so there's an angel, and apparently this angel was 
an angel that people could see because we get this and we know where the angel was over Jerusalem and not only that, but this angel was by the threshing floor of this Arana, the Jebusite. By the way, who's a Jebusite? Does anybody know what a Jebusite is? Are you nodding yes, Randy? (laughs) Jebusite. I'm reading in Joshua now my Bible reading. I'm, I try to read a passage of the Old Testament that I'm reading through the prophets. This is also Old Testament. I'm reading like Old Testament, beginning of Old Testament, then prophets, and then I'm reading through the New Testament. I'm in Revelation there. But I'm in Joshua, and one of the things is uh, Benjaminites, they didn't finish conquering Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a city that was owned by the Jebusites. Those were the people who dwelt in Jerusalem, and they, they couldn't drive them out. And so it, it's one of those, you, you see this a number of times in Joshua, where they talk about they couldn't drive out these people, and they remained here until this day, and they were, they were servants to the Israelites because they couldn't completely drive them out. And the Jebusites were one of those groups that they never really completely drove out. And so they were still living among the Israelites, and they were still servants of the Israelites, living among them. So they were Gentiles that were still in the area from, that were left behind from the conquest because they were never totally defeated. And so that's who the Jebusites are. So this is one of the guys that was just left there from when Israel couldn't drive them out when they came into the land in the time of Joshua. Um, so this guy owns a threshing floor, and the angel was apparently at the threshing floor that he owned, and he was ready to finish destroying Jerusalem, and uh, God has to tell the angel, that's enough, the three days are up, restrain your hands, stop destroying things, and the angel, of course, obeys the Lord, that would make sense, right? Um, and so God restrains the angel at the threshing floor of Arana, I don't know how they say that name, love these names, so at this guy... And they're like, well, that's a great story. Well, this guy's going to come into the story quite a bit now that we've introduced him. So, so the three days, 70,000 people die from this plague. And now we see it kind of from David's standpoint, because we're going to come back to David here in verses 17 to 19 and see what David does. Jana, go ahead. So David here takes personal responsibility for his sin. David goes and pleads with God. It was not his it was his sin, not the people's. Well, let's go back to verse one. Who was the anger of the Lord aroused against? Israel. So it was the people's sin. That's what started this whole event. But David doesn't maybe realize this. 
So David's going to take responsibility and say, it's my sin. I, I was the one who sinned. I've done wickedly. Um, you know, God's still being righteous here. He's judging the people. But David's going to plead for the people. So David offers that, let your hand be against me and against my house. Well, God gave David the option. Who, what do you want me to do? There was an option in there where David could flee three months before his enemies. That God's hand could have been against David and his house. And David chose to be a three-day plague against the people. So David kind of made that choice already. Um, I think God knew David was going to make that choice. And God, again, his anger was aroused against Israel. So God was being just in this. And knowing that David would choose this was also... um, His wrath was against Israel for sinning. So God was doing what was right and just in this case here which God always does what's right and just, I should say that. Um, so David pleads here, and again, this is probably at this three days, because God said this is going to be three days. David sees the angel and makes this plea, and Gad's there, his prophet, and Gad says, okay, here's what you do. Go to this threshing floor where the angel is, and you build an altar. And you do that, and that's what you need to do at this point. So, he builds a, he's going to go build an altar. David says, he, it says, David did according to the word of Gad and went up as the Lord commanded to go build this altar. Now, where do you think this threshing floor is? You might want to take a guess. Yeah, it's where the temple is going to be built. So, yeah, kind of convenient. No, it's, it's where the temple's going to be built. So David's going to build an altar where the future site of the temple is going to be. All works together. Okay, so that's an interesting fact here. Second uh, Samuel 24, 20 through 25. Let's finish the chapter. Who wants to read? Abigail, go ahead. So David buys land for the altar. What word did I use there? Altar. So Aruna sees the king coming. And this was probably not an everyday event for him that the king comes to your house and to your threshing floor. Uh, Aruna bows before the king. 
And he asks why the king has come. Again, probably not an everyday event that the king comes to your house. Especially as a Jebusite who's not an Israelite, um, probably doesn't happen very much at all. So he, he inquires of the king, why have you come? David answers, he's going to buy the threshing floor from him. Okay. Why are you buying the threshing floor? To build an altar to the Lord. Why are you building an altar to the Lord? Because we need to stop the plague, and that's what I was commanded to do to stop the plague. So I need the threshing floor, I need to build an altar because we need to stop the plague that's killing 70,000 people. Aruna counters by saying, I'll give you the threshing floor. You're the king, you don't need to buy it from me. And he's probably interested in stopping the plague anyway. So you can have the threshing floor. In fact, you can have whatever you need. I'm not going to withhold anything from you. I'll give you the oxen. You need something for the altar to sacrifice with. Have the oxen. In fact, you have my threshing floor. I'm not going to need the threshing implements anymore. Take those because you'll need wood, so just burn them. I don't need threshing instruments. You have the threshing floor. I don't have a threshing floor anymore. Why do I need threshing instruments anymore? So you have the yokes. You can have... the, the yokes for the oxen, you're going to kill the oxen anyways. I don't need the yokes anymore. Use those for wood for the altar. So I could be generous with the king. And then he, he makes a statement here at the end, interesting statement. Uh, May the Lord God accept you. You know, he's, he's like, uh, you know, your God, I, I want him to be on your side. I want him to accept you. I'm, I'm gonna help, I want to help you do that. I don't know if uh, Aruna is a Jew or if he's, he's worships pagan gods, but he has this idea, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and try to get God in, on your side and in your favor. And I'm going to give you all this stuff and you do what you need to do to get God on your side and get this fixed. And that's kind of his idea here. He's, he's all for that. And he's being very generous with the king. He's like, I, I, I like you as king. I want to help you out. Just take the stuff build the altar, do the sacrifice, make your God happy. Because he sees that the sacrifice is what's going to make God happy. David understands a little better. David says, nope, I need to buy the threshing floor. I'm going to buy it for a price because I'm not going to offer something to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. It's not a sacrifice if it's something that you're giving to me to give to him. It needs to cost me something. It needs to be something that I give. It needs to be something that I'm sacrificing. It needs to be something that, that I need to, to spend. I need to sacrifice. I need to give of myself. And, and David understands that. So, so he convinces Arana to, to sell him the threshing floor. And he buys the threshing floor for 50 shekels of silver. This is about a little more than a pound of silver, which seems to be with, uh, uh, according to a lot of commentators I read, the threshing floor, the oxen, all the stuff that's in it. That's probably a fair price. So he, David probably paid market value for what it was there. Later on, if you're reading Chronicles, um, it says that uh, he bought it for 600 shekels of gold. And you say, well, that's a lot different than 50 shekels of silver, right? Well, that's probably buying the rest of the land because the threshing floor probably wasn't big enough to build the whole Temple Mount area. So he probably went back and said, um, I got the threshing floor. Now I need the rest of the land because I want to 
my son to build a temple here, so let me buy the rest of the land. So that's probably what the 600 shekels of gold was for, to get the rest of the land. So if you see that, you go to Chronicles and you read the difference in price, that's what the difference in price is there. Um, and so he did that. He built the altar and offered the burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar. And the very last thing we read in the chapter is the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and withdrew the plague. And so David followed what God commanded there and withdrew the plague after David created the altar and offered the sacrifices. So that's the chapter. That's the book. Some takeaways here. So first one, David knew that if sacrifice cost him nothing, then it was not true sacrifice. Serving God will cost us time, effort, energy, money, etc. But it is a sacrifice that God is pleased with. I want to look at a couple of verses here. I'm going to have you guys read, so if you haven't got a chance at candy, got a chance at candy still. Malachi 1, 6 through 10. Ted, go ahead. And here in Malachi, the Israelites were offering sacrifices that were costing them very little because they were offering the blind, the lame, the sick, instead of the best of what they could offer, the stuff that really would cost them. And they were not really sacrificing to God. They were offering the stuff that they, they could afford to offer, that they could get rid of, that didn't cost them anything. And that was wrong, and God was displeased with that sacrifice because it wasn't really a true sacrifice for them. And... And that was, that was unacceptable to God. And when we're not giving our best, when we're not giving our best effort for God, we're not sacrificing for him. We're not worshiping him the way we're supposed to be worshiping him. Second Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, who wants to read that? Go ahead, Brenna. And here, uh, the churches here in uh, Macedonia, they were 
an example of just giving, and this is actually literal giving that they're talking about here, that uh, Paul was talking about that they were in need, and uh, these churches gave, and um, it says here that they gave according to their ability and then even beyond their ability. They sacrificed to aid Paul in his ministry. And then you see in verse 5 there, it says that they first gave themselves to the Lord. They, they served and sacrificed themselves for the Lord, and then they gave to Paul um, by the will of God. And, and it shows really their true heart for serving and sacrificing not only their lives, their time, but also even their material stuff to serve the Lord. And that's true sacrifice on their part. And so that's a good example for us there in Second Corinthians. So David knew that sacrifice cost him nothing. It was not true sacrifice. We need to uh, sacrifice our time, effort, energy, money to serve God and to do uh, the things that he wants us to do. Second one, God took both the sin of the nation of Israel and the sin of David seriously. Uh, we cannot think that just because we are saved that God does not care anymore whether or not we continue in sin. God desires that we live holy, sanctified lives. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Who would like to read that? Lynn, go ahead. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Grace may abound. Certainly not. How shall we who died in sin live any longer in it? I really wanted to put hold Romans chapter 6 in this, on this page, but I didn't want to spend the whole time reading Romans 6. Um, but here, just, just a summary. Coming out of Romans 5, it talks about how when uh, sin is increased, grace abounds more that God's grace is greater than our sins, as quoted a song. Um, and so Paul comes on Romans 6 saying that, well, if, if, if grace increases as sin increases, shouldn't we sin more so that we can earn God's grace? And he's saying, no, we shouldn't sin more for grace because we're dead to sin. We've died to sin. We shouldn't live any longer in it. And he goes on to give a treatise that if we've died to sin, we've died with Christ, and now we've been raised to new life in him, and we ought to live in light of that, we ought to be consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness in Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 6, just a, a great explanation of how we as Christians are no longer under the power of sin. And we shouldn't be placing ourselves back under that power of sin, but that we should be considering ourselves alive to Christ and, and slaves now to righteousness. And we ought to be living the right way for God. And God takes sin very seriously. He, ought to, he wants us to be living righteously and holy for him. And so... Um, even here in this passage, you know, David um, David has everything kind of worked out for him, the kingdom, everything's kind of settled down, and Israel starts sinning again, and God says, nope, we've got to deal with that. And David sins by numbering the people, and God says, no, we have to deal with that. God takes sin very seriously. Last thing here, David came to the conclusion that he had sinned and confessed it on his own to God, yet the consequences remained. Even when we deal with sin biblically, we still may have to deal with the consequences of sin in our life. And so I added this on. It's better for us not to sin and avoid those consequences. If you want a motivation beyond anything else the Bible tells us, if you want another motivation not to sin, just think there's always consequences to sin. Your sin will find you out. Sin always leads to death. There's always consequences to your sin. So don't sin because you want to avoid those consequences. Okay? Just... Being a Christian, being saved, and knowing that you can confess that sin doesn't mean that you're going to avoid what's going to happen because of that sin. So there's always consequences of that. Even David, David came up on his own and said, you know, God, I've sinned, sorry, I, I, I sinned greatly against you, I've done foolishly. 
take away my iniquity. And I think God said, yes, you have sinned. I forgive you. I'm taking away your iniquity. But, sorry, i got to give you these three choices. There's consequences to what you did, David. And David looked at that, and he saw that, that it was his fault these 70,000 people died, and he saw it's his fault, the plague in the land and stuff, and, and his heart was broken because of that. And you could see just how he reacted, and I cried out, you know, God, let this be on me, let me this be on my house. These people are innocent. They don't deserve this. And, and he, he was broken by this because of what he felt he had done. And he still had to deal with those consequences. So we need to be just considering that even beyond everything else that the Bible teaches about sin that there are consequences to what we do. So that's what I got this morning. Any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns? Nathan? Joab, that's a good question. Joab had a responsibility as commander of the army to do what the king told him. But we also know that, like, when Peter stood before the Sanhedrin and they told him to stop talking about Jesus and said we ought to obey men rather than obey God, that he said, you decide what's better for us to do, whether to obey men or, yeah. I don't know if I got that right. I'm kind of talking. Close enough. You decide whether we should obey men or God, and we're going to obey God and keep talking about Jesus. That they went out and did that despite the consequences. So, you could say that maybe Joab says, "Hey, David, I'm not going to do it. Um, this is wrong. God doesn't want you to do it, um, and I'm going to face the consequences of that. And you, if you have to kill me for that, fine. Maybe maybe Joab should have said that. Now, um, I want to look at this quick here. It seems like he understands that God." was displeased with David for doing that. So it seems like he understands that it, it, it was some kind of biblical mandate on God's part that David shouldn't have done it. So I would say yes. Um, given Joab's history, I'm not sure that David ever, or Joab ever had that kind of conviction that he would have done it anyways because you know he, he killed people just out of uh, a whim, it seemed like, most of the time. So yes, I, w- I would say if I were in Joab's situation, I would say, you got to get somebody else to do it, David. This is wrong. God doesn't want you to do it. I'm not going to take part in this. So I, I would say yeah. Just off, the, just off the top of my head. But I don't see Joab as being a man of the strongest convictions in the world. Yeah. If if you've uh, if you betrayed me, watch out. Those are my convictions. Yeah. Um. Anyone else? Did that, that's on right, Andy. Okay. Yeah, that's that's kind of at a, a look here. Just just because he does talk about may the Lord God add the people a hundred times, it seems like he understands there's a divine mandate here. At, at least he has some biblical understanding. But again, I'm not sure. Joab has the strongest theological background or the strongest faith in God even. He seems to kind of pick and choose when he wants to be uh, godly and when he wants to be selfish. (laughs) Okay, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Ted, will you close us in prayer?